0: So I want us to start tonight with just a word of prayer for a moment. Heavenly Father, we're asking this evening that you would guide us through your word as we discuss redemption in your grace. And God, I pray that the the incredible truths of scripture, some of those that we have sung about, some of those that we have learned since childhood, some of those that have meant the most to us in the past. God, I pray that they would be brand new in our hearts and minds, that they would be a beauty, a rejoicing, a depth, a wonder, an awe. God, I pray that you would help us to continue to go deeper and deeper into the gospel. And God, may we be more and more amazed at what we discover. In Jesus' name. Amen. So we have been studying the story of redemption, the gospel message. The gospel is the good news that speaks of God's design, it speaks of sin's intrusion, and it speaks of Christ's solution for human flourishing. When we talk about God's design, that takes us back over to creation and what our created purpose really is. When you talk about sin's intrusion, that goes back to the fall with the entrance of sin into the world. And when we talk about God's solution for human flourishing, it's broken down into two different parts. There is redemption, which is Jesus' work on the cross, as well as with the empty tomb three days later. And there's also the idea of restoration. That is the sanctifying work of God that enables a person to be able to live out their created purpose. So if someone has been a believer for a while, if somebody grew up maybe in a Bible-teaching, Bible-believing church, many times we are really, really good at the major talking points. We can carry on a conversation. If you were to ask somebody like, well, what's the gospel? They, they might say it's the story, it's the good news. And Yes, that is correct. They might be able to say it. It talks about the fact that Jesus died on the cross for our sins. That is correct. He rose again three days later. Correct. He offers eternal life to those who place faith in him. Correct. 100% true. The place that things fall off the rails is when the conversation itself goes off script. It's when people ask questions that we were not prepared for them to ask. Questions like, why did Jesus have to die on the cross? Questions like, How do I know if I've placed faith in Jesus? How do I know if I've really acted in faith? Questions like, why is it not enough for a person to simply live a good life? And in those moments, that's when Christians begin to bail out of conversations because we're not sure of where the next step needs to be or or how the pieces fit together. Oftentimes, we've been trained on talking points of the gospel. We've not been trained in the story of redemption. We've not been trained to understand from a theological perspective, from a practical perspective, from a salvific perspective, from a gospel perspective, what is the story of redemption and how does that impact all of us. So that's the reason we're taking our time. And you all can clearly see we're taking our time going through the book of Ephesians. We're taking our time because it doesn't get any deeper than the gospel. And if we don't understand this central message of Christ that is all throughout the Word of God, we not only miss part of what God has done for us, but we also miss the ability to be able to effectively share that same message with others. So we're taking our time. A part of this has been that we are building two parallel rails for the train of the gospel to travel down. Now, if you happen to have your notes, you can look over at these parallel rails. Um, Next week, we will offer you a magnifying glass in order to read the centerpieces in between them because the words are getting smaller and smaller as we go further down. But I wanted this to be something that hopefully you can visually see what we're describing. So rail number one has been the big redemptive story. That's the thirty thousand foot view. It's the one that starts in Genesis and ends in the book of Revelation. It's the the story of what God has done throughout the Bible. And then if you go over to the other rail, that is specific truths that are found in Ephesians 2 that help us better understand the big story of God. It's the 30-foot the view. It's the details behind the story. Both of those pieces are essential. So here it is really fast. I'm going to put together three previous messages in about the next four minutes. So very quick, just touching the surface. Key truth number one, it's right in your notes. Humanity is separated from God by sin and incapable of reconciling the relationship. According to Scripture, and this is what we found in our study of Ephesians, we are sinners by birth, we are sinners by choice, and we are sinners by practice. We have all lost our way. We have all slipped from the truth. We have all shot our arrow of of desire, our arrow of effort at the target of God's perfection. And that arrow has fallen short. Scripture tells us that the penalty for sin is death. And when the Bible speaks of death, it is not referring to extinction. Uh, Death primarily refers to separation. When a person dies physically, their spirit is separated from their body. When we died spiritually, our spirit was separated from God. According to what we find in Scripture, our spiritual condition prior to Christ is one of being dead in trespasses and sin and incapable of reconciling the relationship ourselves. Then key truth number two, God loved us while we were sinners and made reconciliation possible through Jesus' death and resurrection. The Bible does not sugarcoat the natural disposition humanity has towards sin. In fact, all you got to do is pick up the newspaper and you find that humanity's moral compass is not exactly moving north. It's the stories, the headlines are filled with greed and murder and lying and corruption and, and sexual deviance of every kind. It's story after story that tells us that humanity is desperately depraved. But just as much as the Bible does not hide how bad the bad news is, it also doesn't hide the good news either. According to what it says, God loved us while we were sinners, and he made reconciliation possible through Jesus' death and resurrection. That's good news for us. Then key truth number three, it's what we covered last week. At salvation, we are united with Christ, and our position is permanently changed according to God's great and gracious purposes. There is a relational theme that goes throughout the Bible, that goes throughout the gospel message. If we miss this relational theme, we've missed so much of the story that God is wanting to tell. And this relational theme that I've pulled out in the last several weeks speaks of God's relational proximity to humanity It's found throughout Scripture. And and here's what we covered very quickly. Old Old Testament, the visible presence of God, the Shekinah glory of God, it was with us in the garden, among us through much of the Old Testament, and then removed from us for almost 600 years because of sin. Then in the New Testament, God's visible presence is back with the birth of Christ. He is with us and then he is with us and he is in us after the ascension and through the person of the Holy Spirit. There is no closer relationship. There's no closer way that God's presence can be with humanity than him being in us. That is positional truth. The Apostle Paul trying to describe this new union in Christ created three words. We talked about them last week. Christ's redemptive work on the cross was what made us alive together with Christ, raised up together with Christ, and seated us together with Christ. So today, we're going to see how a person enters that relationship and abides in that relationship through Christ. I'm going to tell you from the beginning, there's nothing I'm going to say tonight if you've been in church for a while that you're going to think, that is brand new information. Nothing I'm going to say. But my prayer tonight is that God gives us new eyes to see truths that when we live them again and again and we understand them in a deeper and deeper level, It changes how we live and how we move and how we act and how we worship and the perspective we have. It changes everything. So I invite you at this time, go with me in your Bibles. Ephesians chapter number 2. We're simply going to be in verses 8 and 9. Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9. This is a text that's familiar to many. It simply says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Let's pray. Father, once again, guide us through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to immediately give you key truth number four, and we're going to unpack it for the rest of the night. Salvation is God's gift of grace that is received through faith in Christ. Salvation is God's gift of grace that is received through faith in Christ. That entire concept should be very familiar to you. The the first part of it, salvation is God's gift of grace. Yes, it's given to us by grace. How do we receive it? It's through faith in Christ. There's nothing about that, again, that is is something that's going to be brand new information. But what I want us to do is I want us to dig into one of the words that is mentioned there and some of the words that come out when we are sharing the gospel, the story of redemption with others. So in this, the word I want us to focus on is the word saved. Saved, salvation. I don't know if you've noticed it or not, but when Christians are sharing the gospel, we use terminology and words that might sound cryptic, to those who did not grow up in the church. Many times people don't understand what we're talking about, and we just keep carrying on, and we're not reading their facial expressions to recognize they have no idea what we just said. So we will talk about things like saved or salvation, being born again, repenting of sin, placing faith in Christ, asking Jesus in your heart, praying a sinner's prayer. And when somebody's listening to this, sometimes they're like, now is that six steps to being right with God, or is that one step to being right with God? They're just not sure. So not only can that language be confusing for people who don't know Christ, let's be honest, it's confusing for a lot of us who do know Christ. So we want to take our time, and I'm going to go through and not only explain this term and a couple others today. But in the weeks to come, I'm going to explain some of those key pieces of our terminology to help us see where it is in Scripture so that we can explain it to others. So tonight, let's talk for just a moment about the word salvation or being saved. If, for example, the Coast Guard were to rescue five fishermen from icy waters, a headline might say, the Coast Guard saved five fishermen. And we would get exactly what they're talking about. If a friend of yours was in a car accident and they had their seatbelt on and their seatbelt was what kept them from being ejected out of the car, you might say their seatbelt saved their life. Uh, that is, anytime someone or something holds back impending doom or pain or death, we use salvation terminology. Notice how that word fits within this gospel story. The Bible teaches us that humanity was not just racing towards a deadly encounter it teaches us that we were already dead this is a whole different ball game in fact we were already separated from god by sin and based on what we've studied completely incapable of reconciling the relationship ourselves In other words, if salvation is going to happen, somebody's going to have to come with something more than a life raft and some floaties. They're going to have to come with life itself. And that's important because a spiritually dead person does not need religion. A spiritually dead person does not need morality training. A spiritually dead person does not need encouragement to do better next week. Oh, a spiritually dead person needs someone with the power of life in them. If humanity stood any chance of being saved, and that's the word we're talking about, saved, held back from that doom, if, if humanity stood any chance of that, there would need to be someone who was personally sinless, someone who had compassion for sinners, in someone who had the power of life and death within their hands. I don't know if you know it or not, but the Bible has somebody like that. His name is Jesus. That's the description of him. He lived a sinless life, therefore he was not under the curse of sin. He showed great compassion towards sinners, weeping for the lost, caring for the hurting, leaving the glories of heaven to come to earth to die on a sinner's cross to redeem us back from our sin. He held the power of life and death in his hands and he imparted as he desired. Apart from his own resurrection, there's three other stories in the gospels of Jesus raising somebody from the dead he raised the widow's son in Luke chapter 7 Jairus's daughter in Mark chapter 5 and his friend Lazarus in John chapter 11 Jairus's daughter died just before Jesus arrived the widow's son was in a coffin and they were leaving the city gates And Lazarus had been in the tomb for four days. But here's the common piece with every single one. In every case, Jesus spoke to the dead and the dead came back to life. This is important. His very word holds the power of life and death. Now take that information back into our gospel narrative. Humanity was spiritually dead and separated from Christ. And Jesus taught that those who believe in him would have eternal life. Salvation describes the act by which God calls a person out of death and calls them into life itself. In this moment, he saves that person. Now, verse number 8, it expresses that exact terminology by saying, "...for by grace you have been saved through faith." It is God who stood in the gap for us. It's God who is the one who saved us. It's the same concept that is shared over in verse number five. By grace you have been saved. So when our our big truth, our statement is salvation, is God's gift of grace that is received through faith in Christ, that's simply what it means. It's he saved us. It's, It's him who called us out of death and into life. Now I want us to... Talk a moment about his grace in this. Grace has been defined in any number of ways over the years. Uh, One of the main ways that it is shared in a lot of church circles, it is God's unmerited favor. And it is exactly that. It's God's unmerited favor. He has extended favor to us, not because of our actions, not because of our worthiness. It's unmerited favor. I I usually go beyond that because God's grace doesn't stop just at salvation. God's grace also goes through the rest of a person's life. So I add in the other verses that also speak of God's grace, and I usually help fill out that description for some people. That is, grace is God's unmerited favor where he does in us and through us and for us what we could never do for ourselves. Now, in the case of salvation, we can clearly see that. God did something in us and for us that we could not do for ourselves. Dead people don't come back to life on their own. It's God who is the one who has acted on our behalf. Others have taken the letters of grace and they've made it into an acronym. Uh, So here's another common phrase, God's righteousness at Christ's expense. Now, that's how some people would define it. This is just me. I don't know if that necessarily incorporates all of grace as we find in Scripture. But, hey, however somebody can memorize a concept of grace, let's go with it. Uh, The Greek lexicon defines grace in general as goodwill, loving kindness, and favor. Think about that for a moment. You've been saved by grace grace through faith. We're saved by God's good will, his loving kindness, his favor towards us. That fits within this gospel narrative. Now, we've already seen in verses 1 through 3 our sinful condition. We've already heard that our sin separated us from God, and there was nothing that we could do to reconcile the relationship. And if reconciliation happens, it's got to be that someone is acting on our behalf. It would have to be because of God's goodwill, because of his loving kindness, because of his favor toward us. And that is exactly what Paul is teaching believers in Ephesus. The only reason... Listen, the only reason, listen again, the only reason any of us have a relationship with God is because of God's graciousness to us, his loving kindness to us, his unmerited favor that has been extended to us Uh, it was not a situation for any of us that our bad deeds were somehow outweighed by our good deeds it's not been that we've been in church so long we eventually worked our way up in merit to earn a position of being saved it is not the fact that we figured god out it is not the fact that we are righteous in ourselves Every single one of us who has a relationship with God through Jesus Christ is saved because God had favor upon us. It's his favor. It's his grace. And it's almost like the Apostle Paul anticipates the next argument that somebody's going to bring. He says, salvation quickly is not the result of works so that no one may boast i don't know if you've noticed it or not but people will quickly take credit for anything good connected to their life we're not nearly as quick to take credit for the bad stuff but we will take credit for anything that happens to be good so you ask somebody tell me about your story and sometimes somebody might say well Listen, I started at the, in the mail room at this company. I worked my way up the ladder, and I'm now the president of that company. It's like, look at what I did. Or somebody says, man, you got beautiful kids. You're like, well, my wife and I, we do make beautiful kids. Thank you so much for noticing that. Or somebody might say, so, how long have you been sober? It was hard work and determination, but it's been 10 years now that I've been sober. We're very, very quick. To point back to anything that looks good or has merit in our life and say, look at what I did. It was my work, my determination, my effort that got us to this point. People can become glory hogs. We are going to look for what's good, position ourselves around it, and wait for the photo op. And the Apostle Paul is telling the believers in Ephesus, when it comes to salvation... You can take no credit whatsoever for being saved. You cannot show up for the photo op. You cannot tell people you worked your way there. It is not a result of work so that no one may boast. Now somebody might say, but but Paul, what about the faith part here? By grace you have been saved through faith. Grace, yeah, that's God's part, but faith, that was me. Well, I'm so grateful you brought up that question. Let's dig into that a little bit. What is saving faith? This is, this is important. There, there's all sorts of ideas about what is faith. And some people say that they equate faith with just a strong gut feeling. If you were to ask them the question, why do you have faith that Jesus is the only way? They would say, I, I just believe I just feel it down in, in the innermost part of who I am. I just I just believe. Okay, somebody else would equate faith with an attitude of credulity. Now that's that sounds like a fancy word, but basically here's what it means: the person accepts something as being true without all the facts because they really, really want it to be true. So a, a great example of that might be somebody who is suffering with a, an incurable disease, and they hear of this new drug that has been tested and They want so bad for it to be right that they're like, I don't even care about the information. You don't even have to show me the research. I just believe it's going to be the case. And sometimes that's the way that people look at someone who's placed faith in Christ. They say there's no evidence for it. Like you you can't touch God. You can't feel God. You can't see God. So. So you're just believing in something because you cannot bear the thought of going through this life without there being a God who is holding things together. You just really, really want it to be true. That's how some people view faith. Other people equate faith with intellectual acquiescence. And that is they they believe the pieces of the gospel. They believe that Jesus was a real historical figure. If you ask them, do you believe in Jesus? Yes, I do. If you were to ask them, do you believe he died on the cross? I sure do. Like, it's in history. It's, it's outside of scripture. Extra-biblical writings describe a crucifixion. Like, they don't have a problem with that. If you ask them, do you believe he rose again? Sometimes they'll even say, yes, I believe that. But none of those things by themselves describe saving faith. It is more than intellectual agreement. It is more than emotional response. It is more than a gut feeling. Saving faith consists of three elements. Knowledge, assent, and trust. Knowledge, assent, and trust. Knowledge understands the biblical facts regarding salvation. Assent agrees that those facts are true. Trust acts by receiving Christ's offer of salvation in knowledge I understand in assent I agree in trust I act. it is possible to understand the gospel and still not believe it. there's people that you you could go through the the parts you can explain people being sinners and separated from God and what Jesus did and like I understand everything you're saying makes sense I just don't believe it there are other people who they might believe it and say I don't doubt I believe that but I'm not ready to place faith in Christ so you ask that person "Well, do you do you believe the gospel I do but they're not at that next stage, that, that part of acting based upon trust. And then you got stories, in fact, it even speaks of this with the parable of the four soils, of people who in a, a moment of emotional decision, they're praying a prayer, but they don't even understand the gospel. They just know their life is a mess and somebody's throwing a lifeline and they're like, if you say pray this prayer, I'll pray this prayer. If you say use a Tabishan prayer wheel, I'll use that. If you say I need to take a, a, a pilgrimage to Mecca, I'll do it. Whatever it takes, I just want to make sure that I get some relief in my life. They don't understand the gospel. They're just looking for relief. Here's the reason I bring it up. All three pieces are needed for saving faith. That is knowledge, assent, and trust. One of the best present-day examples of seeing those three pieces in action in regards to a relationship would be in a dating, courting relationship between two people as they meet, start dating, and move towards marriage. They will usually pass through all three of those pieces. For example, During a dating or a courting period, they're simply getting to know the other person. They're getting all the information, they're finding out where they're from, they're learning about their family, they're gaining knowledge about that person, their desires, their hopes for the future. It's kind of like they're, they're just gaining all the information they possibly can. And that, that's an important period right there. If you show up on the first date saying, I am madly in love with you, let's get married tomorrow, that's a fast way not to get a second date. <laughs> you need to take a, a, a hot second and get to know somebody, all right? That's an important part, okay. But depending upon what you learn in the knowledge period depends on whether or not your heart engages afterwards. Sometimes what you learn, you're like, eh, eh. that, That is not for me. But then there's those other moments that what you learn, you're like, oh, that's sweet. I like that. That's me. They have my values here. And the more you get to learn, the more you like, and the more you like, the more you find all of a sudden your heart's getting connected to this person, and there is this emotional thing that is happening. And you know it's starting to happen because you start laughing at jokes you wouldn't have laughed at a month ago just because they said it. You know something's different because when you're not around them, your mind is constantly thinking about that person. And all you know is you want to be in their life and you want them to be in your life. And something happened. You might not be able to describe when it happened, how it happened, but you moved out the friend zone into the romantic zone. Okay. Now, as that love grows, the natural desire, people, is I want to spend the rest of my life with this person. So here's what happens when people get married. When that couple comes together on their wedding day, the bride and the groom commit themselves to be completely faithful to that other person so long as they both shall live. They make vows like in sickness or in health for better or for worse, uh, for richer or for poorer till death do us part. And here it is, and two become one in marriage. Did you notice the sequence of what just happened right there? There was a knowledge stage. Then it moves into this heart stage of, I believe. There's there's this connection point that's happening. And then there is this trust stage. You're entrusting yourself, going deeper into the relationship with that person. Biblical faith is following that same progression. We encounter knowledge of the gospel. We understand that our sin separated us from God, that Jesus died on the cross, that he rose again three days later. We understand he offers eternal life to those who repent by placing faith in him. That makes sense. And sometimes a person could hear that 50 times and not change anything. But on the 51st time, something different happens. There's a clarity that comes that same invitation call that seemed to be for everyone else now it's like you're the only one in the room that 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 desire to to know Christ, to be rightly related to him, the the passion for what he did. There's a brokenness over sin. There is a, a desire to accept what it is that he offers. It's the best news you've ever heard in your life. And you can think of nothing else you want other than to be in right relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And in that moment, you repent of your sin by placing faith in Christ. And there is union that now happens in Christ and that person is saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith. All those pieces of faith have now taken place. So that now brings this one final part. If grace is God's part, is faith our part? Yes and no. Yes and no. If faith were completely a human virtue, then we would now have reason to boast we would be able to tell people, yes, it was God's grace plus my faith. In order for us to remember how this has to fit together, we have to remember where God found us, dead in trespasses and sin, incapable of reconciling ourselves to God. Dead people do not act. Deceived people do not believe. It has to be that God is the one acting on our behalf, quickening a dead spirit, illumining a deceived mind. And enabling a person who is far from the gospel to understand the gospel, to be drawn to the gospel, to, to agree with the gospel, to place faith in what He has done. It is God who is the one even enabling the faith that is necessary. Apart from what God does for us, none of us would incline ourselves to God. It has to be that He is doing the work. For by grace. You have been saved through faith. Redemption and God's grace. You and I could never earn salvation, but God has done what is necessary so that we might be rightly related to him. The next time we come back, we are getting into one of my favorite verses in scripture. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus For good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. When we talk about the fact God has an incredible plan for your life, this is one of those passages that you go back to. It's saying we have been recreated in Christ, put on a path that he has prepared ahead of time. And when we are on that path, life is good. It's not always easy, but it's good. When we're out there trying to blaze our own trail, that's when life just gets ugly. So when we come back, we're going to be talking about this verse, verse number 10. Let's have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for grace. We thank you for the gospel. We thank you, Lord, for everything that you have done to make salvation possible for us God, may we not take it for granted. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you all. We'll see you this next week.